You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. And welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on? Yay, not much. Same old, same old, same old. All right, a couple of quick things. Updates on the home arcade sitch. So Saturday. I spent 10 hours in my car driving to Jackson, Mississippi to pick up a used version of the arcade one-up reproduction of X-Men. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. And that comes with the Captain America beat up as well. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's been real fun. And uh, the guy, the guy took good care of it. I absolutely stole it from him. So that was nice. My wife has almost finished putting together NBA Jam. That's going downstairs. Uh, And on pre-order, and this is our biggest machine that's not the multi-cade, that's that's not from Arcade 1-Up. This is from At Games. Uh, A virtual pinball table. But it's a little bit ironic, Matt. So they're coming out with a new line. 4K virtual pinball from At Games. They have different themes from the pre-order. The first one they announced was Adam's Family, based on the the classic, one of the all-time great pinball tables. And I'm like, okay, that's not bad. Like, I'm not instantly drawn to it. Fine. Uh, Then they had Snoopy, uh, and then they had this uh, this dinosaurs-themed table. Then, dinosaurs as in just generically dinosaurs or like the 1980s 90s tv series with not the mama and the baby uh the uh the regular dinosaurs not the not the television property okay uh, then they announced the star trek table here's the problem though it's kelvin timeline weird yeah but because i was gonna get one of these things anyway and they threw in as a pre-order bonus the uh classic next generation table. I went for it. Yeah. So I'm gonna have Chris Pine staring at me and that uh that weird looking enterprise. So that's that's the up and that, that'll be uh March, I think, when that when that pre-order is gonna come in. Nice. Uh but it's gonna be beautiful. Man, the next generation pinball game is the only pinball game I ever loved. such a fun game uh okay all of the arcade discussion out of the way question for you tonight we're going to talk a lot about humor tonight uh we've talked off air about this we're going to have some thoughts about comedy and comics to you what is the if not the funniest comic book what's what's the book that has used humor the best that is a good question i'll give you my answer while you continue to think And for me, if you're going to be funny, are you going to try to be funny? You got to bring in the professional. So this is why I think this book works so well. 
Uh, it is the Brian Posehn, Jerry Duggan run on Deadpool. Posehn is credited first. And I think that that is important because his comedic voice and timing just makes the whole run work. And I think it's been one of the most successful uh, modern Deadpool runs. And I could go back and start reading that now. The Dead Presidents, the first arc, is so good and so so effortlessly funny. And that's, again, what we'll get into tonight. When you try too hard to be funny, it drags your work down so quickly, so fast. Um, so my nomination for best funny book of all time uh, and and this and look this this is not putting aside someone like Kyle Starks who is in his own league when it comes to comedic books with heart. We could spend a whole hour talking about how much I love Kyle Starks, but for a big two property that does not make me groan, it's Posehn and Duggan. I'm I'm trying to think because I mean I've read plenty of funny comics over the years, and I've not read a lot of what would be qualify as humor comics a because they're not really a thing anymore most of what we get that would qualify as anything close to a humor comic is more a satirical comic your mark russell properties very specifically he's the closest i can almost think of to a humor writer nowadays but it's scathing satire yeah as as a point i always like to make with my students satire does not have to be funny and a lot of a lot of Russell's work is not funny, intentionally so, perhaps unintentionally so. If your you know, your mileage may vary there, it's funny. You could ask me about you know the non comic related stuff, and I answer like that every time. Comic related stuff, I go down the memory hole. Like so let me just think of all of the you know probably. 100,000 plus comic books I've ever read and try to come up with the right answer. The right answer. Right. I don't want to answer something like Bat Scoob, which is an easy, you know, it's the funniest. The book I read now regularly that is consistently funny. Okay, your mileage may vary on this as well uh, because it is dark humor. Oh, I love dark humor. But some of Garth Ennis's best work, Hitman, Preacher, are darkly funny. Oh, 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 yeah. The panel that gets memes so often from Preacher, the I forget the exact wording, but like, why are white supremacists so fucking ugly? But there's there's other bits in Preacher that are very funny. And Hitman, A, being set in the DCU, does a lot of riffs on superheroes which is something that ennis has little to no time for but there's also zombie night at the gotham aquarium which is exactly what it sounds like zombified aquarium animals hunting through the streets of or through the aquarium at gotham because it's you know still fucking gotham both of them are very funny but the thing that makes ennis work in the same league or play the same league as Starks is that underneath all of Ennis's gross out or shocking humor and extreme gore, his best stuff has a real human theme to it. Mm. Preacher is a Western and a love story. The arc of that story is Jesse and Tulip. 
and there's so much character to it and hitman is about friend it's friendship it's a, a group of guys who are friends and would do anything for each other the less ennis is edited the worse his stuff gets go oh, is oh boy yeah that is the very much the case punisher max is about violence and what violence does to the people who are both the victims of violence and the ones who inflict it and again it's edited but the boys has much less of an editorial hand and while it is about power and the abuses of power and it has a theme because he doesn't have an editor it wanders a lot more Mm-hmm. And there are moments in there that are so extremely over the top that it throws the reader out of it somewhat. Like crossed. Exactly. And then you get into his avatar stuff where there is pretty much no editor. And it's just, there. there's no theme to crossed. Crossed is, let's see how far I can push this thing. Yeah. And then there's his war comics, which are just war comics. Because Ennis likes tanks. World War II era tanks. Yep. And planes. Yes, and planes. There's a, a great four-issue miniseries he did for Vertigo early in his career called Pride and Joy. It's a father and son relationship story, but it's just, oh, by the way, the dad used to be a mob hitman who got out, and now the mob has found him again. And his Hellblazer is excellent. But I think some of that stuff is just so utterly hilarious and then there's stuff that's just situationally funny like how constantine beats the devil over and over again in the original that original dangerous habits run where you know wait wait hey wait 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 hold on i know constantine i've been watching some some of the animated stuff where it's pronounced constantine and it's been in my head it is technically constantine in the comics but it, we, it, we have we have to stick to the canon on this show, Matt. Yes. When Constantine tricks him, he tricks the devil into drinking holy water. And then when he sells his soul to the three archdukes of hell, it's like, well, if I die, you guys have to go to war for my soul. And that just weakens your ranks so heaven can just sweep in. So guess you got to make me immortal. It's not knee slapper funny, but it's it's such a novel take on that kind of thing. And oh yeah, there's an, another an issue of Hitman the, during the DC One Million event. Tommy Monahan, the titular Hitman, gets pulled into the future of the 853rd century by a bunch of fanboys, and he's having none of this. And there's just a whole thing with Gunfire uh, One Million. Gunfire is a z-list character in the present and tommy runs into his like legacy hero and he has the ability to turn anything he touches into an explosive or a projectile like a beam weapon and the whole sequence ends with oh god i turned my ass into a hand grenade yeah another one of those i had to put that down for a second to catch my breath you know, it's funny that you say hand grenade. I think that's the only joke that worked tonight. Tonight, Patreon backer Tim Rooney asked us to read some stories from the Giffen Demetrius Justice League International era. 
before, regardless of what we have to say about the content of the books, Keith Giffen passed away now about a month and a half ago, right before New York Comic-Con. I knew Giffen personally. He shopped at the comic book shop I worked at for a number of years. He was the biggest curmudgeon I have ever met in my entire life. And I say that lovingly. Like, I don't say that like he was not a jerk. He was not a, he was a, he was a very nice person, but boy, he was a grump. And he always knew when, when Keith Giffen was coming in, you were going to get at least half an hour of him just being a grump. And it was worth it. It was worth it every time. I don't think any of the lines here are attributable to him. I think they mostly are. I think this era really? of Giffen is much, this is much more, I I can't be sure. Because Demetrius's stuff that I have read is much more serious. Giffen, when he co-writes Justice League Europe with Gerard Jones, it's got the same sense of humor. Mm. So I think the baseline of what the humor is comes from Giffen. I mean, Going Sane is by Demetrius. This does not have the same flavor as Going Sane. That's very true. The first story of the night is Massacring Grey. This is Justice League Volume 1, numbers 5 to 6. The writers are Keith Giffen and J.M. Demetrius, with pencils by Kevin McGuire, inks by Al Gordon, colors by Gene D'Angelo, letters by Bob Lappin, and edited by Andy Helfer. The cover dates are September to October of 1987. The Gray Man, an ancient sorcerer once imprisoned by the Lords of Order, has escaped his prison and is seeking revenge on Dr. Fate and all of creation. The only recently minted New Justice League must face this new threat, one they may not be ready for. Plus, Batman versus Guy Gardner. This was the particular story that was requested because this has one of those infinitely memed, infinitely referenced moments, both on the internet and within the comics themselves. This is the one punch. This is the Gardner being an ass, takes off his ring, threatens Batman with a fist fight, and Batman knocks him out with one punch. So I'm I'm not up really on my lanterns. You know, I know Hal Jordan, John Stewart. No one seems to like Guy Gardner. And it's very strange that even in the context of this story and this this moment, this is not really integral to the story, right? Batman, maybe maybe this is a longer arc, right? But these two issues, Batman socks him and he just doesn't show up again. It is and so I'm I'm a little confused here by what's going on. And am I supposed to hate Guy Gardner? I suppose I am. But the, the, I thought the whole idea with the lanterns was that the the guardians pick somebody who's good. I guess they screwed up with him. Is that the point? So here are the things when it comes to to Gardner. First, Gardner was originally not this much of an asshole. He mm-hmm. literally suffered brain damage. He had a head injury, and when he came out of it, he was kind of like this. And the guardians don't necessarily pick the good it's the fearless and the strong willed so you can be an asshole but as long as you're fearless and strong willed you still qualify 
Mm, okay. It's how you get a Sinestro, since he was a Green Lantern first. But he turned out to be a tyrant. Gardner, the thing that I will say about these books first, they are very, very much of their moment. They're very topical. They very much exist as broad satire of things going on in the 80s and are late 80s and are steeped in pop culture references of that period. Gardner was designed in these stories to be the typical 80s, you know, guy's guy. This was a guy who thought Reagan was the shit, who was a chauvinist, was everything sort of wrong with the 80s man. The joke is when he comes to after that punch, he suddenly flipped his personality. It becomes a, a, the, the Flintstones sort of bit, only instead of amnesia, he's now just remarkably nice. And various people in the league think it's him playing, that he's, he's playing possum, basically. And it becomes a whole shtick. This is a heavily, 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 heavily serialized run. It's hard to pull out individual bits because there's so much context and such a large cast. A lot of that sounded interesting and maybe okay, but I don't like the idea of this thing persisting as a bit. Obviously, we'll get more into this, but the tone for this is just not me, right? Especially, I, I, I don't know what order we're reading this in. The joke in the annual? Bull. God, I hated that. The annual, it's the annual next because the annual literally slots in right before the other two-parter we're doing. It was released the month before. This is not how Batman would behave. And talking about that story, obviously we'll talk more about that. But this, this stuff works for me. If, 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 if. This is like a brave and the bold. It's not canon. It's off to the side. It's its own universe. But quite clearly, this is not. This was the Justice League of this period. Yikes. I will, I will admit, reading this again for the first time since 2003, because I didn't remember, I didn't come into reading comics until the late 89, early 90. So all of this stuff, these issues were all before I was reading comics regularly. And I didn't get into the Justice League really until Morrison. I picked up scattered issues before that, but I was never a diehard reader of this stuff as it was coming out. So I bought all of this out of dollar bins and completed a run. In retrospect, reading it now, Batman is an unrepentant asshole throughout yep. all of these stories to a point that takes the Batman as loner, Batman as grump and turns it up to 13 it goes beyond 11 in places it almost reads like a satire of miller right it's like oh this is this is ratman the angry team leader and you know watch watch him be angry and somehow satirical the next issue after this issue seven bruce steps down as full-time leader of the league he only pops up sporadically in this series after issue seven. We, we're covering 
that one arc where he is heavily featured there, but Jean is the leader of the league starting with issue seven. And Martian Manhunter is, he's the least broad in this run. The main joke with him is, oh, he really likes junk food, Oreos specifically. But otherwise he is written, he's the straight man for this entire run. I knew going in this was going to be an uphill slog for you because this is the kind of whimsical thing that just, I know, rubs you the wrong way. And and look, I don't even understand why. Like, I I enjoy humor, right? Uh, again, talking off air about this, like, so much of this, and this kind of fits with the period, like, this is really like Naked Gun meets Batman. With the amount of just constant stream of jokes, this feels like airplane, right? But it's just something about when the humor is forced, right? When the jokes don't land, and and I, you say that they, it's it's of its day, but I don't even think Jim Neighbors jokes were funny in 1988, right? That we'll get to the Jim Neighbor. I'm not sure where that one was coming from. Yes. The satire, especially, is very much of its day. And we'll get a little more of that in the third story, because that's where Max Lord really features. And he is an absolute satire of the 80s, at least at this point. You know, later he goes and shoots Blue Beetle. But, (laughs) you know, it happens. Yes. But we're talking broad strokes. This first one is probably the least broad of the three tonight. It is a somewhat darker story, but it also, the gray man, this mystical threat here, is such a nebulous threat. He's not a very well-formed character. He's a plot device to get the League into this situation. There's some interesting ideas here, right? The, the the fact that he's this cursed sorcerer, this eternal guy who at this point just really wants to watch the world burn. He's got this endless series of, of clones of himself that he can basically spread and infect the world. But it's stuck in this gray area between too much exposition and then not enough. So like we get this whole backstory about his life and where he went wrong and how he's been punished and how anguished he is. But we also understand what the threat he poses to the world, right? Even we don't get the explanation that's given to the team. Like they yada, 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 that whole scene away. We don't get the benefit of whatever briefing that Batman got. It's it's strange pacing and strange storytelling. What Gray Man did is straight out of mythology that he attempted to do something that he shouldn't. He attempted to look upon the face of God, basically, and that will always burn you. It's Pandora's box. You don't open the box. The DC Universe has a a trope where never attempt to see the moment of creation. Because if you do that, bad shit will happen to you. It will create the antimatter universe and the antimonitor. It will make you pariah where you have to 
travel constantly to from planet to planet that is about to be destroyed and be the witness of destruction. That's what this is. This is an, a mythological trope. And I think it's leaning on the assumption that people would get the theme, which is not necessarily true. And he's just, he's fairly two-dimensional, which I guess makes sense because he's had all of the emotion, all of the personality, everything other than this desire to be revenged upon the Lords of Order stripped out of him by millennia of just being alone. But what is conceptually interesting does not make for a terribly interesting villain. No. It's it's why if you've got an unknowable big bad, they're supposed to have henchmen who are interesting to give you a hook. But he doesn't have any interesting henchmen because all of his henchmen are just him. In his uh in his khakis and members only jacket. Which, you know, for a guy who's been trapped on an island outside of time for millennia, he, he got right into that 80s fashion real quick. And I don't think the art really helps out the, the storytelling here either, because we're supposed to believe that whatever the great man has done in this sleepy little town in Vermont is like so horrific and horrible and awful and especially in the first scene, like the first guy he kills or whatever, there's just not a lot of oomph to it. And even after he transforms the town, there's still not a lot of detail and menace to it. He's supposed to be a world ender, but visually and narratively, it just doesn't stick. I like Kevin McGuire as an artist, but his strength is always in character. He mm. has really, really expressive characters. That That's, does work here. And it does. That is his his thing. Those faces, the way characters interact physically is good. It's a kind of weird looking world. Like these, these like weird organic sort of bone structures. But it's not horror. And people just seem to sort of collapse when one of these gray men touch them and from the dialogue it seems like oh you're stealing your dreams your ability to dream you're supposed to go nuts i don't understand why this wasn't a town full of berserkers yeah uh event horizon shit right as opposed to them just sort of falling like limp puppets and but i guess the uh the sodomy pile doesn't really play out in a in a 1988 book does it no <laughs> no. no. If there was a god, we would have the original cut of Event Horizon, which has more from the uh, the sodomy pile. More Event Horizon will always be a good thing. Where we're going, we don't need eyes. I like the fight sequence in issue two when Captain Marvel is overtaken by the Gray Man and he has to throw down with Jean. And those are two characters who are, you know, Superman-level brawlers. So it it's cool to see them kind of cut loose and smash the town up a little. And I, I, I'm going to try to compliment the uh, the comedy where I think it works. The the bit where uh, John is like, did I hurt you? And Marvel's like, uh-huh. Are you okay? Uh-huh. They go through that a couple of times. That was cute. I enjoyed that. 
this is the least broad of these three stories. There's more threat, even if it's not well-defined threat in this than there are in the other two. And McGuire draws a hell of a creeper. His creeper, because his body contorts and he's got that giddy, mad face. It works really well for the creeper. Who's a character we haven't run across on this show yet, have we? No, I know nothing about the creeper. So... I don't know if you picked it up. Jack Ryder, the asshole news guy at the beginning of the story. Yeah, that's the creeper. Hmm. Okay. My only other exposure to Jack Ryder that I can remember is uh, Gotham uh, Audio Adventures. Yeah, Jack Ryder is created as the creeper. At the time when he was created, which would have been the late 60s, early 70s. I'm trying to remember when the creeper was created. 68 so over time he's he's always a reporter he's usually a tv or radio reporter modern takes have usually made him the equivalent of some kind of shock jock who also has this weird jekyll and hyde alter ego with the creeper and so yeah that was when you see jack Ryder showing up it's like okay so when is he gonna turn all creepery So that's something Audio Adventures is probably going to get into, right? I would assume, yeah. There's a reference to it at the very end of season two. They've got him hosting the late night movie in some of those cutaway ads. And there he calls himself the Midnight Creeper. Ah. My assumption is he's going to get exposed to Scarecrow gas or Joker gas or something and is going to turn into the Creeper. Why not both? In Batman the Animated Series, when he shows up, they tie his origin to the Joker, to Ace Chemicals. So, well, someday we'll cover the, there's one issue of that Joker series that we did the the couple issues from the Joker Two-Face and the Joker Luthor issues. There's a Joker Creeper story, too, in there. So Okay. He often is a Gotham character, so we will be able to, to cover some Creeper at some point or another. It is hard to very hard to find Batman sympathetic or likable in this story when he's bullying Captain Marvel. Decking Gardner, fine. Everybody wants to punch Guy Gardner in the face. And Beetle and Booster take nothing seriously. But bullying Captain Marvel, it's like kicking a puppy. Yeah, he's just a baby. And even if nobody else realizes it, he's Gosh and golly gee, sort of guy. You know, when Batman is he, Batman's punching down there. Because he's Batman, it's it's pretty much always punching down. But still, there's so much context here with why this league is the way it is, where it comes out of. At some point, we'll uh, cover Legends, the DC crossover, the first crossover after Crisis that spawns both this book and the Suicide Squad. That That's on the docket for someday. And that'll give you some ideas of where the world, the DC universe is at that point. But I just feel like this was trying to take the Justice League in a different direction because we were just coming out of the Justice League Detroit era which means nothing to you, but to everyone out there who knows their DC history, this is a time when the League was Martian Manhunter, a character named Steel, not that one, 
Uh, <laughs> not that steel, not the cool one. Nope. Vibe, who is a breakdancing themed hero. Oh no. Vixen, who probably comes out the best. Gypsy, which can't use that name for a character anymore. No. Uh, and occasionally Aquaman and Elongated Man. But really, and occasionally Zatanna. But really, it was just Jean and four newbies. It is one of the more maligned eras of the League. And now for something completely different. <laughs> and it most assuredly was. I think I think we can move on unless you have anything else. Uh, no, I don't. So that means it's time for Justice League International 5 and 6 Massacre and Gray on the big board. All right. We have 345 stories on the big board. God damn. Number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Uh, number 50 is Identity Crisis, also not that one. The issues where Tim Drake takes up the identity of Robin. And coming in at a family-friendly 69, it's Batman and Robin and Howard. At 100 is the Silver Age story, Robin Dies at Dawn. At 150 is the first arc of Gotham Academy. At 200 is Zero Year. At 250 is Year Two. At 300 is Harley and Ivy, the three-issue Deanie and Tim miniseries. And at the bottom is Curse of the White Knight. Boo! I want you to give me an area because I want to <laughs> see. I want to see where you're thinking. Okay, so out of the three, I disliked this one the least. I figured as much. <laughs> so this this is gonna be the, the the top story tonight. I don't think I could put this any higher. I'm gonna say two eighty. Uh, that's Talon. So to me, that's just a more complete and enjoyable story. So much of this humor seems to get so forced, but I'm still not going to put this story at the bottom in the dregs. So my opening bid is 280. That is not much below where I was thinking. I was thinking somewhere maybe in the 260s, 270s. Okay. So That's absolutely fair. Because just looking at it, I don't think this... The incompleteness also hurts this in that it ends on something of a cliffhanger. But again, there's there are no def really defined arcs in this run, except for, you know, towards the end when it's wrapping up. You can't just be like, okay, we'll stop reading here, and there's a satisfactory ending. There isn't. What about last week's Hollywood Night? You might not necessarily love what this is, but this maintains its tone and its world throughout. The problem with Holiday Night was that it was all over the place with, okay, is this a world where there is Batman or is this a world where Batman is a fictional character? Why does the Joker really exist in this world despite Batman being a fictional character? Why does Alfred really exist in this world? Yeah, but that one held my attention better. All right. I'm looking at this list, I've realized it's getting harder and harder to get 
into like even the top 150 now. Yeah, but we've done a lot of stories and a lot of them have been good. We really need to do that re-ranking episode <laughs> soon. There's some stuff here that I really want us to discuss moving around. Not just ho- Holy Terror and Clash of Symbols and Blades and Dread. There, there's Because I do not feel like Clash of Symbols should be higher than some of this other stuff. You said you can't put it above 280? 280 was your ceiling? I said that, and then I see Bouncing Baby Boy at 171. I probably hated that one more. There's more in terms of, a, of its goofy zaniness. But there's more of an emotional core in that story. Very true. How does 277 sound? I think that's below that you know, Gotham Adventures Dead Man issue. But it's above the Kingdom Son of the Bat, that Kingdom Come follow-up with Ibn al-Zufash, that universe's version of Damien, that has some neat stuff with Damien sort of gathering Raish and Brainiac and Luthor, but it's also just sort of all over the place, and it doesn't give any of its ideas enough time. Yeah, I can do 277. All right, 277 it is. Quickly, without looking, is this G-R-A-Y or G-R-E-Y? A-Y. A-Y. I only know it because I always spell it E-Y, and I kept having to correct myself in the script. Because even though it doesn't matter to anybody but me, my scripts have to be correct. That's the American spelling, right? E-Y, English? Yes. But it just just looks right to me. Like I spell theater R-E despite the American spelling being E-R. Oh, and I can never keep that straight. The American spelling is E-R. The British spelling is R-E. Within the industry, theater E-R is the building. Theater R-E is the art form. Oh, boy. Uh-uh. I would never be able to keep that straight. It's taken me 20 years to finally get it right. Okay. Our second story is Hit or Miss. This is Justice League International, Volume 1, Annual Number 2. The writers are Keith Giffen and Jam DeMatteis. Pencils by Bill Willingham. Inks by Joe Rubenstein. Colors by Gene D'Angelo. Letters by John Costanza. And edited by Andy Helfer and Kevin Dooley. The cover date is July of 1988. Ruman Harjafti, the dictator of Bialya, has hired the Joker to take out the JLI. Follow the Joker as he attempts to assassinate the League as they go about their daily lives. First up, uh, Problematic Creator Watch. We've mentioned it before a couple of times he's popped up. Bill Willingham is something of a right-wing... I believe he's written for Breitbart. I mean, yeah. So, but he recently had a, a hissy fit and tried to make all of his rights of the fables stuff public domain, which I don't think works, but... So looking at this particular issue, this is literally the last possible minute the joke at the end of this book could come anywhere close to working. This comes out the same month as The Killing Joke. No. Ah! So the fact that spoilers for a, you know, 30-plus-year-old comic in the end, when Batman arrives on the scene and finds the Joker with the League, 
And he's just like, no, I can't deal with this. And just drives off, leaving the Joker behind. That doesn't work after Killing Joke. No. The Killing Joke has not happened yet. So this is literally the last possible minute that joke works. If you want to call it working. Yes. But it's the last minute that you can look at that joke and it is not complete. Like, no, there's no way in hell Batman would not take the Joker in himself. It's not like he's leaving Joker, you know, alone on the side of the road. There's how many other heroes there. But after killing Joke, there's no way Batman doesn't take the Joker in himself. So that that is a point. Because I had to look that up. Because I'm like, this is right around that time. It's like, yep, same month as Killing Joke. Same month. The duality of comics, Matt. There are bits in this issue I really like. Yeah, I as as a concept, I think it's kind of fun. Narratively, for the parts that I don't like, it at least doesn't drag. The next story just, uh, fucking drags like hell but this at least like zips around from league member to league member and we'll certainly get into what they're doing and why they're doing it but it does keep a pretty quick pace and there's something to be said for that there is one sequence that to me gets something about the joker really well so the joker is has these various henchmen following paired members of the leagues all the league members have sort of paired off in this story and he's got this one guy who's following martian manhunter and rocket red who's the russian representative on the justice league international or soviet excuse me because it's still 88 and they've gone to a restaurant in brighton beach because red is feeling homesick and john wanted to show him the russian emigre community and joker sneaks into the back of the restaurant and sees that the restaurant is packed and it's basically a big party and he storms out because what do I look like? A mass murderer? Well, yes. But I don't do freebies. I was hired to kill the Justice League International. And so then he, of course, kills the henchman and tells his driver to take him to the next one. And here he's like, and I hope there's a lot of people. I feel like mass murder. The caprice of the Joker. The fact that he can go from, no, I was hired to kill these two guys, and these are the only two guys I'm going to kill, to, I feel like blowing up a whole building full of puppies and orphans, gets something about the character really right to me. Yeah, it's switching from lawful evil to chaotic evil. At the drop of a hat. Oh, of course. And that's presented as a good joke. This is another one that is so weighed down by the topical jokes joker wanting to watch wapner joker insisting that you need to tape entertainment weekly and edit out the commercials which is a joke that does not land for anyone who does not know about vhs and doing the thing where you were pausing during the commercials while recording but i do remember entertainment tonight yes it's a fun show still on some version of it still on I remember watching previews for First Contact on Entertainment Tonight. And Joker, you know, going to McDonald's and going to Roy Rogers. It's very much in that moment. And it's not like we don't do topical humor in media anymore. But I think people try to be a little more careful to not have it be every third joke. 
which was one of the few problems with Mutant Mayhem. Tonally very similar to this. Joke, 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 joke. Topical reference, topical reference, topical reference. I think with comics, that became less of a thing as creators realized that, oh, these things are going to get collected. This was still being written at a point where these were disposable. After, you know, another couple of months, few fanboys are going to buy them as back issues, but these aren't going to be republished. So we want to get the all the punch we can out of it. But that's not the way it works anymore. So we have nine leaguers, not counting Batman. Three groups of two and a sort of group of three. Although Barda isn't really on the league. She's just Mr. Miracle's wife. Not that she's anything but just Mr. Miracle's wife, but for the purposes of being a member of the Justice League, she is not officially a member of the Justice League. You got uh, think- Certainly, in, uh, and for the most of this story, she is treated just as a woman. Again, this era, the joke was they were trying to be just a you know suburban husband and wife. They weren't trying to be big heroes. It was just like, we're just trying to live in the suburbs. And, of course, chaos would regularly ensue, because that's not how that works. No. But you had Fire and Ice, or Green Flame and Ice Maiden at this point. And I will just address them as Fire and Ice in this and the next story, because Green Flame and Ice Maiden is a mouthful, and Fire and Ice is is just easier. Preparing to go on a modeling audition. As I said, Martian Manhunter and Rocket Red are off in Brighton Beach. Barda, Scott, and Guy Gardner, still in his nice guy persona, are out preparing the the Justice League uh, barbecue and weenie roast. And Beetle and Booster. How many times does uh, Barda say wiener? Oh, so many times. So many times. Weenie. So many times do they say weenie. And finally, you got Beetle and Booster on one of their innumerable get-rich-quick schemes. Because that, again... Very 80s and was very much their shtick in this book. They were the real comic relief. And they were always up to some scheme or another. What's funny is that over the years, their roles have kind of switched. Here, Beetle is very avaricious. He's the one who's really pushing this scheme. And Booster's like, are you sure that's a good idea? That has very much flip-flopped in the past 20 years. Now Booster is the one who's always got some scheme or another. And Beetle is like, are you sure about that one, Michael? That might not be the way to do that. Wasn't It wasn't after this story that I threatened to quit if we had to read more of this. But thinking that uh, this book needs comic relief is like, I don't know. I can't even I would I wouldn't even try to come up with a, a, a funny analogy at this point, but uh maybe not so much comic relief as they are the characters with the least pathos that Martian Manhunter always has a degree of gravitas, ice and fire, ice's relationship with Gardner and fire, Captain Adams kind of a dick. But Beetle and Booster are just there for the gags. Eventually, they they both, as the series progresses, there is especially stuff with Beetle. I love Blue Beetle as a character. 
but I think a lot of that comes from the time when he was a supporting cast member in Birds of Prey and the later stuff here where he's struggling. He struggles with his weight and he struggles with a heart condition. So he gets, you know, again, some pathos. Booster is always just looking for the next scheme. Booster quits the league eventually and forms a corporate superhero team because that's the 80s. And again, surprisingly, no Max Lord here because was he ever an 80s character? And you you get a little bit of that in the next story and a bit of, you saw a bit of it in the, the previous one, the one two-page scene with him and Hal Jordan. But throughout this whole thing, Beetle and Booster's scheme is that they decide that, hey, there are, you know, repo jobs that require super people because there's, you know, things like tanks out there. So let's be super repo men. And it goes about as well as you'd expect, especially at the point when they pull up to Scott and Barda's house in a tank. Yeah, much zany. Very funny. It is. Zany is exactly what this story is. This more than the other two very much feels like a naked gun or hell, an episode of like Animaniacs. It has that frenetic energy of one of those. Except you've got the Joker just murdering hench people every other sequence. You know, I, I read a lot of, you know, independent superhero stories. And I'm just like, if only you could have used like the actual big two characters, right? This, I think I might would have liked if you could have only not used these characters. Fire and Ice, who also had just joined the league like the month before, get the short, the shortest end of the stick of these stories. They get a couple pages at the beginning, like one page in the middle where Joker attempts to shoot them and just misses because fire you know he ducked ducked and then he shoots his henchman in the limo with a sniper rifle that that yeah. requires some i mean he's the joker so they perfectly still while i awkwardly position myself joker's costumes or his outfits in this are wild yeah the uh I, almost a q level of zany and theatrical the one that got me, if you look at not his first outfit when he meets Harjafti at the very beginning, but when he's sitting and watching the people's court, I'm pretty sure he's wearing the white suit from Dark Knight Returns. I'm pretty sure it is a direct visual nod to Dark Knight before he then switches to a Bialian military uniform, foreshadowing him being the, you know, the UN diplomat to Iran. And at least we get less Bialya here. I mean, Harjavti is an uncomfortable stereotype looking back at him now. Woof, is he ever. And here it's just sort of there. The next story, it's much more telling. I will admit really also having a soft spot for this comic as it is one of the first back issues I ever bought. That Kevin Maguire cover of the Joker holding the cards with the different members of the league on them is a striking and memorable cover. Yeah, again, I like the core concept here. I just don't 
like the tone at all. The tone works better for, for me here because this is a character piece. This is really just supposed to be, you know, a day in the life plus the Joker is trying to kill them. But I think you have to buy the conceit that this is a comical and whimsical Justice League. If you can't get into the tone of the book, it's not going to work. Yeah. I don't really know who's asking for a whimsical, funny Justice League. After where the Justice League was in 1985 and 6, this was like nothing that had ever been published before. You gotta remember, this was, at its time, a completely unique and novel concept. It's still unique and novel. We now have the Great Lakes Avengers. We have various comedic superhero teams that exist in big two superhero comics. The closest we'd ever had before this was the Legion of Substitute Heroes. Made from just a bunch of, you know, people who didn't have the greatest powers and wanted to be in the Legion to a group of comedic sidekicks by Keith Giffen. So again, I think tonally that tracks. I don't know if I have much else. Well, if you don't have much else, I think that means it's time for Justice League International Annual Number 2. Hit or miss on the big board. I have a number in mind, but I want to see where you're thinking. Okay. I think this is a little bit better than the last story. Just because of the concept, I, I still don't care for the execution at all. I would put this around 310. Spawn Batman country. That puts it below Catwoman election night. There are only so many jokes I can take, Matt. Oh, I can't put it below Catwoman election night. That was insulting to... The only reason it's not lower is that it is not in itself offensive. Spawn Batman is nonsense. It's pretty nonsense, but it's nonsense. This book is nonsense, Matt. This has a consistent plot. This is true to the world that it is building. It's a bad world, Matt. I can't go that low. <laughs> I can't. Like I just look at the stuff above it, and I'm like, no, I enjoy this more than that. I enjoy this more than that. I'm, I was looking in the 290. Oh, come on. Is there is there really that much of a difference between 290 and 310? I, maybe it's just that I just like Spawn Batman more than that. <laughs> uh, Spawn mean, Batman was bad. Yeah. See, I don't think this is bad. The difference is you can look at Spawn Batman, you can almost say empirically you can see where that fails. This fails because this does not, this fails for you because you don't like the world this exists in. You has plot holes you can drive a truck through, like Spawn Batman. Surely. I I could be prompted to put this above Harley and Ivy. Because, again, I don't care for Paul Dini. I think he's a bad person. All right. I think that's a split the difference. Baking this 301. <laughs> it's above your 310 and below my 296. So, I guess 301 it is. 
Oh, that's a that's a real compromise. If you were thinking two ninety six, and I'm thinking three ten, and we go to three hundred one, I don't I don't think that math adds up. It's up nine for you and five for me. So it's, it, I mean, what we put it at three hundred five. I mean, <laughs> at this point, we're just splitting hairs. Hey, you got a bigger piece of hair than I did. Well, we'll see about the next one. I'll I'll give you some more wiggle room on the next one. Hoist you on your own petard the next time. I'll let you start out. Final story of the night is Bruce Wayne in Bialya. This is Justice League International Volume 1, numbers 16 to 17. Writers are Giffen and Demetrius. Pencils by Kevin McGuire. Inks by Al Gordon. Colors by Gene D'Angelo. Letters by Bob Lappin and edited by Andy Helfer. Cover date is August to September of 1988. Batman, Green Flame, Booster Gold, and Blue Beetle go undercover in Bialya to learn about Colonel Harjofti's new secret weapon. But Harjofti is not the biggest threat as the Queen Bee prepares to unveil her own plan. So we said it a bunch in the first story, but... Even more so here, because we're deeper into the series, there is so much backstory that is not really explained here that it is kind of hard to grab onto the hooks in this story because they don't go out of their way to explain who Harjafti is, why the Justice League has an issue with Bialya, what's going on in the other subplot with the League in Space, which we aren't even going to touch on here. It barely references when a a character returns from the dead 13 issues after he died, other than a little text box, you know, one of the asterisk things. There's not a ton of context here. Again, I really like the idea of Batman using Bruce Wayne's name and notoriety to go undercover as Bruce Wayne. Yeah, it's a a clever concept. Where this one falls is how topical it is and how painfully stereotyped Bialya is. The Middle Eastern terrorist state thing, especially existing where we are now two months into a massive shooting war between Israel and Hamas, is seriously problematic. Yes. I mean, Harjafti is just such a broad gag of a character. And also, the entire country of Bialya is miscolored. They are all really white for a country that exists in the Middle East. I noticed that uh, somewhere else in these stories, too. Someone is referred to specifically as uh, Latina. Fire. She's Brazilian. Yeah, uh, but not on the page. She's always been drawn far too white for someone who is Brazilian by birth. What's funny is that, I mean, that is an 80s problem, but it's never been fixed with fire. Like you'd think as things have gotten better, she would be colored to look Brazilian, to have a more a skin tone. Don't even get X, X fans started on Sunspot who is African-Brazilian and who is often colored as if he has a slight tan. Not good. But Bialya, I don't think I was as 
conscious of how problematic. I don't think anyone was as conscious of how problematic this was going to look in X number of years when this was coming out in 1988. And there's there's just some othering. There's, you know, the jokes about how they, they don't like Americans, but they like the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. There's a real Iran-Contra sort of, you know, reaction to all of that going on here. And putting this version of Batman alone on a mission with Beetle and Booster and Fire is just, again, a recipe for Bruce to be an asshole for two issues. Because he's nothing but a jerk to Beetle and Booster throughout this entire thing. I did think it was interesting how he said as Fire or Flame was sort of coming on to him, under all of this, I'm actually quite ugly. And I thought that was an interesting dodge. That's actually a pretty, I, I've seen that panel meme. That was, even before like memes were a thing, that was a gag that got called out. It's a, a decent moment. And then I like that, okay, well, I can't be Bruce Wayne anymore, so I'm going to be Max Lord. Sure. And he suddenly is just doing the makeup for Max Lord, which is a saving grace in the end because he was Bruce Wayne before and now he's Max Lord which is a further dodge from Batman being Bruce Wayne. The cover to the first part of this, this was an issue I bought long before I bought the the rest of the run because that issue of Bruce standing there in the James Bond pose with fire and ice is a great looking cover. It's striking. But again, this is where there are all of those Jim Neighbors jokes, which just don't hit. No, you're right. I mean, th- there's a Willard Scott joke, which that was at least topical for that particular moment in time. But Bruce calls Beetle and Booster Heckle and Jekyll and the Jim Neighbors Gomer Pyle jokes. Those seemed like jokes from the 60s, I guess, maybe. Question mark. I don't remember the enough of this plot to remember how all the stuff with the global guardians and queen bee pays off. But again, there's a good idea under all of that, especially when you get to the end and Batman positions himself as, you know, we're going to, you know, liberate these people from you. And she's like, no, you don't get it. They don't view me. They love me. You're the invader. That's a, a good point. It's a point that often gets overlooked that we or it did at this time, at least. That was not a point you got in the 80s a lot. Now, after 22 years of forever wars in the Middle East, the fact that we are we as Americans are not viewed as the liberator the minute we show up in a country is something we're a little more used to. Uh, yes. A couple of things about movies. So I forgot a point I wanted to make last week about how Hollywood Nights and one thing I did particularly did not like there. Studio head Joker makes a reference to Gone with the Wind when he has a Gone with the Wind poster uh, in his office. I thought that was uh, hat on a hat nonsense. The first story tonight, I don't know why we we felt the need to do this, but Gray Man's hideout was a theater and every single time the theater was on panel we had to see that it was timothy dalton in the living daylights and then that tied into uh bond 
with with this issue. Okay, I'm going to admit a failing or a blind spot in my cinema viewing. Bond? Not Bond, Dalton Bond. Ah, you know what? I I I will admit to the same thing. I haven't just sat down to watch any Dalton. I've seen all It's the only Conner- two, right? It's not many. I've seen all the Conneries, I've seen a smattering of more. I've seen most of the Brosnan and all of the Craig. I've seen all of the George Lazenby's full one. Uh, License to Kill and Living Daylights. I think that was the two Dalton films. In my own head, I thought there were more than that. No, I think it's just the two. Oh, okay. Then I I feel less off. I thought that there were three or four. They're supposed to be good, though. Yeah, I just never gotten around to it. But these more fall in the tone of like the wackier, more movies, this type of stuff, the jokes yeah, and the things that absolutely. you get in this, in this book. Not in love with when there are guys pursuing Bruce over rooftops. One of them falls. He's there. Bruce looks down at him. Oh, legs bent at bad angles. Maybe I should go and help him. Nah. He doesn't sit there and talk to himself and go, nah. I did like that grenade gag though. That was a good gag. Like, yes. Is it? Oh, is that a clue? Oh no, that's a grenade. Yep. Good old Batman always dropping smoke grenades. Uh, which which Brosnan film have you not seen? Um. Oh boy. So we have Goldeneye. Oh, seen uh, Goldeneye. The world is not enough. Tomorrow never dies. They're Die always... another day. Name wise, they they're all so generic. I know I, I mean, I've seen Goldeneye. I know I've seen Tomorrow Never Dies. I think I haven't seen the the last one. I think I didn't see didn't see Die Another Day. Uh, yeah, that was skippable for sure. When when Madonna is cameoing in the movie, pass hard pass. Yeah, Die Another. Yeah, Die Another Day. Yeah, because I like. Oh, it's got Halle Berry. How bad could it be? But pretty bad. Although I mean, Jinx would have been an interesting spinoff, which is what they were going for. Listen, I've I've sat through freaking Denise Richards as a uh, a rocket scientist. If I can sit through that, I thought Christmas only comes once a year, Trebek. It's a shame that Brosnan peaked in the first in his first movie as Bond. Yeah, yeah, Goldeneye. I got a soft spot for Tomorrow Never Dies because I think the plot is so interesting. Like Rupert Murdoch is a bad guy, absolutely yeah. works. <laughs> I mean, is a bad guy in a movie versus a bad guy in real life. Uh, and Jonathan Price just has so much fun. And um, Michelle Yeoh, I will watch anything with Michelle Yeoh. After that, there's a real drop off in Brosnan quality. I can't think of when Connery peaks, but they're they're all pretty consistent. I mean, I think the best of the Craig is uh, at least the middle of his run. Because I think Skyfall is probably my favorite of the lot. Yeah. Because uh, the Casino Royale, though. Casino Royale is great. I like Casino Royale a lot. I respect the bigger, the big swing of Skyfall. Casino Royale is a pretty faithful adaptation of that book. I think it, the Skyfall is a bigger swing. And so if, if it's almost a push, I will give it to Skyfall for that. And... Javier Bardem is top notch. Oh, always. I wish Connery could have been talked into doing that cameo. 
that would have been a nice send off. Yeah, but I, I think Connery he'd he'd given up by that point. Like I've made so many bad choices at the end. I could have been fucking Gandalf, but no, Alan Quartermain. That's the role that was gonna make me again. Ah, I wish there had been more of of that James Bond in this story. I wish it had really been, you know, Bruce Wayne having to wine and dine his way through Bialya and sneak into places as opposed to, oh, he gets found out pretty quickly. And there you go. Yeah. Using charm, ingenuity, wit. And fire, green flame, whatever you want to call her. Green fury. I mean, she's had all kinds of names. I don't think it was introduced at this point, but her current history, retcon backstory, she was at one point a member of the Brazilian equivalent of the the CIA. She was a spy. She will eventually go on to serve as the Black Queen's knight in Checkmate. So... It feels like that would have been a natural thing to play with, but I don't think that that had been made part of her backstory yet. I also, I also have to say it was the having her run around in her underwear was pretty cheesecakey. Yeah, that's never a good idea. Yeah, I mean, again, it's very much of it's that the the 80s you you could do that but it doesn't make it good no and i there's a moment here where booster breaks him and beetle out of jail because he realized that oh the guard had taken the flight ring that he has a telepathic connection to it was like let's get him close enough and use it to summon the ring and bang the guy into the bars it shows that booster and beetle aren't just a joke True, but I think the word that he wanted there was telekinetically. The ring is hooked into his his mind. He can command it using his mind to make him fly. So I think there is, it's using telekinesis, but it is a telepathic connection to the ring. That's how I read it. It was a piece of cake to telepathically yank him against the bars. Okay, yes, you're right. It's a telepathic bond to the ring, but that would have been a telekinetic act because you're moving something with your mind. But I know that the, those Legion flight rings form a telepathic connection to their wielder. I don't feel like we have much else here. Spent a lot of time talking about James Bond, but that cover is probably my favorite part of the, the two issues. You know, I don't complain enough uh, about cliches. And just tired, worn out shit. So when this story ends with, uh, what I want to get it right, where no league has gone before, you're not being clever when you make a Star Trek reference, right? It's not new. It's not interesting. You just don't have to do that. And that's what's what I hate in all writing, right? Whether it's my students working on an assignment and they don't know any better to, to you know use worn out ass cliches like this, but professional writers should know better. And yet they continue to do stuff like this. The country had already been through final frontier and they were a couple of years away from undiscovered country. And to his credit, next generation was 
in its first season? Yeah. I believe that is correct. 87? 87 into 88? Yeah, so definitely. So it was fresh again in people's minds. (sighs) All right, let's just put this to bed. (laughs) Yeah. That means it's time for Justice League International 16 and 17. Bruce Wayne and Bialia on the big board. All right. 320s. 320s. I I didn't think it was that much better than, uh, or that much worse rather than hit or miss, but I'm not going to argue. I mean, uh, my problem with it is the Bialia stuff. It falls into that segment of stories that, okay, it is maybe the three teens. Because while the Bialia stuff is problematic, it is nowhere near as problematic as all the stuff we get in Night Quest The Search. Both with the infantilization of a black female protagonist. Oh, and God, that's bad. Just how stereotypical the Caribbean Latinx stuff is in Santa Prisca there. I could put this above Superman's Secret Kingdom. They have very similar problems, but this one does have more story to it than that. Yeah. I think then 316. Well, we made it out, Will. That we did. Now, next week, uh, we're going to be joined by Patreon backer John Wickham uh, to talk about times that Batman has run afoul of the other team that came out of that Legends crossover, the Suicide Squad. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, mm-hmm. Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Two Bucks, Tim Rooney, George. Yeah, thanks, Tim. George <laughs> Reggioli, David Wheel, Alexander Wheel, and Matt McThorne. McThorny for their support. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. And I'm at Will Devon. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.